good morning, Journey Church. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Great. It's great. I have been looking forward for all of the 48 hours that I had noticed to be here today. So excited to be with you guys. Um, uh, I was talking to Kara before the service, and she said that, Chad, if you're watching this, you're being a big baby in your room. So I hope that you're recovering and feeling better. Um, Usually, when I'm, I, right now, like my ministry is like I speak at different churches on, on Sunday. So, usually, I'm leaving my house early in the morning, no time to like make breakfast or anything. So, there's a Starbucks uh, that's like you know, a couple blocks away from my house, and that's where I stop for, for coffee on my way out. And uh, today, I went there and, and I had this thing called like a chocolate foam cold brew. Listen, I'm like a coffee snob, but I usually don't, go, don't do Starbucks. I do like the, 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 the pour over that looks like a Breaking Bad chemistry, like set, whatever. That's usually how I make, have my coffee. But this thing will like give you new hopes and dreams. Like it was <laughs> incredible. I had never had it. Changed my life. It was phenomenal. And that has absolutely nothing to do with my sermon. I just felt like I wanted to share that information with you. So after this, stop by Starbucks and get a chocolate foam cold brew. Now, as I'm making my order, uh, I guess because I have an accent, I don't know, they thought I had ordered something else. So, like, they give him, they asked me, what did you order? And took, like, a few more minutes, and then the, the, the lady at the drive-thru shows up and says, like, do you want this extra drink? Like, we made this by mistake, so, so you can have it for free. I'm like, sure. So I got it, and I'm very caffeinated, as you can tell, because I had, like, two, two, two coffee drinks. And that does have something to do about, about what I'm talking about today, because, um, you know, sometimes in life, Things aren't fair, right? Now, most of the time when things aren't fair, when we think things aren't fair, is when something bad happens to us or something bad happens to somebody that we think they don't deserve. But a lot of times, there's also the opposite case. When you see in, in the scriptures, is that things that are good that we don't deserve happen to us. You know, sometimes you get a free drink at Starbucks. Sometimes your, your debt gets paid. Sometimes, uh, you know, somebody forgives you for something that you did that you didn't really deserve to be forgiven for. And uh, as you guys are uh, having journeyed through the parables of Jesus today, I want to look at a parable that talks about that. So with that, if, if you want to follow along on the screens or if you want to follow along on your Bible, uh, we're going to look at a parable in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. Uh, so people call this the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So I mean, it's going to kind of like start making my way uh, through the text and then we'll see what God has to say to us. Before I do that, would you mind praying with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning knowing that uh, that nothing catches you by surprise. That you knew that, you know, Chad was not going to be able to make it today, that, that you knew I was going to be available, and that maybe there's, there's something that you want to speak to us this morning, to all of us, through your word. So what we want to do today is make ourselves available to you, make ourselves available to your spirit, that in, in the words of, of Jesus, we will have eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Uh, when uh, 
my family moved to the United States in 2006, but before that, I kind of did like an exchange student thing for a few months when I was in high school in, in, in Brooklyn, New York, of all places. I remember like stopping by, by uh, 7-Eleven and seeing like people like 6 a.m. like waiting outside 7-Eleven, not understanding what's going on, until somebody explained to me it's a lot of like day laborers that they show up there and they're just kind of like waiting for somebody that needs work to pick them up. And it's kind of like the idea that's going on here when we started the parable. At that time... Because of the heavy taxation of the Roman Empire, because of all of kind of like how the, the, the life in that land had changed because of, of Roman occupation, a lot of people were poor. And not only a lot of people were poor, but a lot of people were kind of like forced to work as day laborers. Very few people actually have what you would call like a permanent nine to five job or the equivalent of that. So the idea of seeing people waiting to kind of like get called to work is actually not, not, not that strange uh, at that time. Now, the other side of that is that even that was the case, because so many people looking for work, so much work being done, a lot of times you had to go early if you were looking for workers because then they would get picked up for, for, for other jobs. So that's how the parable starts. Verse 2 says, he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and send them into his Vineyard. A denarius is basically the, the equivalent of like the, the wage of one day's work at the time. I think we have an image of what a denarius looks like. So basically that coin, that was like the, the average wage of, of, of working uh, for one day. So like, you know, he, he finds the first batch of workers and he says, come work for me and I'll pay you one day's wage. But then he comes back. So, so the next verse says, about nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. Now, now the, the, like the sense here is that the first workers that, that he gets when, when, when the owner of the vineyard shows up early are the best workers, right? Like if you're looking for day laborers, you're looking for, you know, people who are like tall and strong and muscular that you think they can do their work. So he kind of like, he shows up and gets all those guys, and then there's more work, so they, they, the owner of the vineyard comes back and now you don't have that, right? Now you have kind of like the JV people or like the bench warmers, kind of like the, 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 the second. They're not, as, they're not as tall, they're not as strong, but, but he needs more workers. So he says, okay, come, come and work for me and I will pay you uh, what's fair. And he keeps kind of like going back for workers. So the next section, the next part of verse 5 says, he went out again about noon and about 3 in the afternoon and did the same thing. About 5 in the afternoon he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked him, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? About five in the afternoon, he went out, found still others standing around. Uh, verse 7 says, because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. A few years ago, I, I read a book by Max Lucado. I don't know if you're familiar with, with, with that writer. His book called and the Angels uh, Were Silent. And it's basically a book that he writes on reflections about the last week of Jesus. In some of the Gospels, this parable is kind of like framed as one of the teachings that he gives in his last week of life. And he tells his story that uh, when he was growing up, he, he grew up in Texas, his dad would send him to look for work on his days off when he was off from school in, in the summer. Uh, I'm guessing at like the appropriate age. Right? I'm thinking like six-year-old Max Lucas is going to work in oil fields. But you know, so, so, and he basically he would drop him off at this rust company that worked the oil fields. And he becomes friends with a guy named Ben, 
who was way older. So Max Lucado is kind of like this, 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 this young kid, and then Ben is kind of like this older worker. And most of the time, it was kind of like that saying that we're talking about, like somebody would come in a pickup truck looking for workers. And, and this is that most of the time, he would not get picked to work that day. And the reason is because he looked really young. Like, what does this, this kid know to do? Ben also didn't get picked. Why? Because he's really old, right? So, like, the, the, the two things that you don't want is, like, the really young kid that you have to teach him everything or the older guy that probably is not as strong anymore. Uh, and, and it's fascinating because in, in the book, he kind of, like, reads that parable through that lens. And he's saying, imagine what it's like to be all day waiting for work all morning long in the heat of the Texas sun and not get picked. When you think about the last batch of workers, the workers of, that are there by 5 p.m., that's kind of like the, the idea. It's these people that probably not the strongest ones, probably not the tallest ones, probably not the most like, you know, capable ones, and they get, keep getting passed over again and again and again. Nobody had picked them. Nobody wanted them. It's like, I don't know about like you. I'm not the most athletic person. So when I was in, in, in like elementary school and we would play like, you know, pick up soccer games or whatever, I was kind of like towards the end of whenever you pick somebody because you, you had to pick somebody to make the, the, the teams. I don't know if that was your experience, maybe some of you, that's kind of like the idea, right? Like the, the workers are like the people that nobody wants to, to hire. Now the story continues, verse eight. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first. And the first will be last. What an interesting story, right? What's going on? What, what truth about the kingdom of God is Jesus trying to explain in this parable? Now, the parable starts with the word for, which grammatically, as you probably guess, you know, it, it's trying to connect this. And in the Greek language, is the same thing. It's trying to connect this story to whatever came before. So I think that in order to make sense of this parable, we actually need to back up a little bit to see what's going on in the previous chapter to understand. So I want to read you just a little bit of the previous chapter of the, of, of the book of Matthew. So it's Matthew 19 towards the end. I'm going to start reading on verse 16 to, to give us some context. Verse 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. I'm not going to preach through this passage, but kind of like just for a second, give you the idea of what's going on. This rich man shows up, and apparently he's a pious person. He's a what we would call a good man, right? Like he, he keeps the commandments. He's, he's, he's a good guy. He pays his taxes, whatever. And he's told when he's like, okay, what do I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? He's like, I've done all the stuff that I'm supposed to do. He's told then that he actually has to give all of his possessions to the poor. And somehow that's for him like too much to bear. And he ends up walking away. And Jesus comments on how hard it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God because of how attached they are to, to their possessions. Now, the implication of this passage, and it's a point that Jesus makes in other parables, is that there is a cost that comes with entering into the kingdom of God. Not, and, and don't be confused, it's not that we can earn our way into the kingdom of God. It's not like, hey, for, for God to lead you into the kingdom of God, you have to do these things so he, you know, you're, you're in good standing with him. It, it's more of like the nature of what it means to follow Jesus. The nature of what it means to be a Christian, the nature of what it means to live in the kingdom of God implies sacrificing, right? There's other parables that Jesus talks about. It's like, you know, count the cost. Like if, if you're going to go off in an army uh, to where you know, some of you are, 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 are in the military, you understand that. Like you have to know how much, you know, munitions and supplies you're going to need and the whole deal. And Jesus is saying, following me has, has a cost. Right? And he's saying, like, you're going to die to yourself. You're going to have to, you know, change things in your life. You're going to have to forgive people. All these things kind of like what it means to follow Jesus. And if you think about it, then, you know, this interaction makes sense. What Jesus is saying is, you know, understanding the sacrifice that it entails to live in the reality of the kingdom of heaven, to live under the rule of God, means that sometimes for certain people it's harder to, to accept that because they think that they have more to lose. The point of the story is that, you know, the, the rich ruler, it's like, it's not like, hey, I'm making like, you know, a minimum wage and I don't really have anything. The guy has like, I have these houses and these possessions. And if I follow Jesus, I have to kind of like be detached from all those things. Now, in that section, so what comes next is when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And, and, and the point that the disciples are asking is like, okay, you're making it really hard to enter into the kingdom of God. And like, if you're a rich person, you have to give up everything. What are we going to do? And, and, and they, I, I think that what you're trying to tell the disciples in that section is that, you know, they still don't grasp the nature of the kingdom of God. They're confusing kind of like the sacrifice that comes with being in the kingdom with what they understand to be the price of admission. They think, okay, you have to get rid of your possessions so God will let you in. And that's why they're so confused. And we know that's what they're thinking because of what comes next. This is what Peter says in verse 27. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? You said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last 
and many who are last will be first. So Peter is basically saying, okay, the rich man is having trouble entry to the kingdom of God because he's not willing to sacrifice. And he's basically saying, look at me, like I'm willing to sacrifice, right? Like I've, I've, we've given up everything for you. And then Jesus goes, yes, you have. And, and, and promises him a reward, offers him a reward. But then Jesus tells a parable that we read at the beginning, which is sort of meant to clarify those statements. But I think that in, in, as Jesus is clarifying those statements, he's actually upending their expectations and their understandings of what the rewards in the kingdom of God are like. Why? Because part of what Jesus is saying is that he's, he's kind of like making a, 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 creating a tension between two things. One is what we should call like the cost of being a disciple. The cost of following Jesus, the sacrifice that entails when we say yes to Jesus, which means that we say no kind of like to the world and to everything else for his sake. But he's also then, I think, highlighting something that's equally as important, which is what, what the parable we read this morning is about. And that is the infinite worth of the kingdom of God and also the infinite grace of God. When he talks to Peter about the fact that they want to be rewarded for their sacrifice, Jesus knows that human nature is to think about that statement through the lens of human economics, right? If you think for a second about how we understand the world, particularly in a, in a capitalistic society, well, we think of everything in terms of earning, right? Like you, you invest in something, you either take a loss or you make a, you make a profit. You work, you get paid. You want to get ahead, you work harder and, lo and longer and, and you make more, more money. So there's this idea that like you have to earn what you receive. But also part of our understanding of economics is the nature of, of competition, right? Like if you want to get ahead, you have to mean you have to work harder and longer than the other person. You have to sacrifice more. You have to be kind of like more involved in the thing. Or anything is to be com competitive, right? And it's part of what's going on because what Peter is saying, when Peter responds, we have given everything to you, is we're better than the rich guy. We've done more to earn the kingdom of God, to deserve the kingdom of God. And, and, and basically what, what, what Peter is saying, is understanding is, okay, if the kingdom of God is worth sacrificing for, then I'm going to sacrifice for it. But guess what? I'm going to make sure I sacrifice more than the other guy. And I think that's what's going on in this passage. Peter's immediate thought was that he was going to be better off than the rich guy in the kingdom of God because he was willing to sacrifice more. And Jesus tells this story, and this story was basically saying is, it's actually not like that. You're going to be rewarded. But you shouldn't be looking at what the others are doing or what the others are receiving, even rewards work different in the kingdom of heaven. You can't buy your way into the kingdom of God, but you can also just sacrifice your way into rewards. And you definitely can't sacrifice your way into getting more rewards than somebody else. The kingdom of God doesn't work like that. And this is one of those truths that's actually really hard to grasp sometimes because in the kingdom of God, we don't earn things. If the kingdom of God is infinitely valuable, then God doesn't owe us anything. Because whatever we have done or whatever we do cannot possibly compare to what we have received. There's a commentator on this passage that says, every reward is essentially an act of grace. 
And here's the thing, understanding this truth is going to make all the difference in how we experience God. Because the difference in understanding these, these two truths about the kingdom of God is the difference between grace and religion. You see, religion basically sees the whole thing as a transaction. I work hard like the laborers that showed up at 6 a.m., right? Or, or maybe for you it's not that, but maybe for you it's I behave right. I play by the rules. I don't sin. I volunteer and I give uh, and, and, and I, I'm part of a small group. In other words, what we're thinking a lot of times is I'm better than other people. Therefore, I deserve more. I have earned this. There's a sense of entitlement a lot of times when it comes in a relationship with God if we see it through the eyes of religion. And, and, and you see this in the parable, right? So it keeps going, verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came were, so, so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. Jesus, kind of like uh, in, in the parable, the, the owner of the vineyard hires people between at the earliest time to a, la to a later time. But then when he pays people, he flips it over and starts paying the last people that he hires. And he's paying them the same thing that he had promised the first people that he hired. And the natural lazy is, well, if they're getting paid what he promised me and they barely work, I'm getting myself a bonus, right? Like that's kind of like the, the, the sense that you have. Now, the irony of the story is that nobody else had agreed on terms of how much they were going to get paid except the workers of 6 a.m. And the owner of the vineyard honors those terms, right? But all of a sudden, now because he's giving the same thing that he promised them to the other people that didn't work as hard, all of a sudden these terms kind of like have changed for them. Like they, they're unfair now. And Jesus is telling this parable and, and, you know, what he's trying to do, I think, is telling the disciples, like, you're thinking of yourselves at the six, as the 6 a.m. workers. You're the ones that have been with me since the beginning. You're the ones that have sacrificed everything. And, and you're kind of like looking at the rich John ruler and, like, the guy cannot even get in because he's not willing to sacrifice more. And also you're thinking, okay, oh, that means that I'm better. That means that God likes me more. That means that God owes me more. But each of them, verse 10, received it also at an areas. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only an hour, they said. You've made them equal to us. We've borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. There's, there's a line that's really telling, right? You have made them equal to us. You see, when we see the kingdom of God through the eyes of religion, it doesn't only affect how we experience God as someone who owes us, right? It also affects how we experience the people around us. They're thinking, I work harder, I deserve more. I sacrifice more, I deserve more. We have burned the burden of the work on the heat of the day. Or, you know, I'm not like her. I'm not like him. I don't vote he does. I don't have the past that she does. I worked harder. 
I didn't sleep around in college. Like whatever else you want to think about in terms of like how we see the morality of people, it's so easy to think, you know, to fall into these patterns of, of comparison and judgment and, and superiority. And he keeps going. So verse 13, but he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for denarius? Take your pay and go. Didn't... Uh, I want to give the one who was hired less the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the most fascinating thing about this parable, right? Because you can make the argument in terms of, of you know, how we think about economics that, you know, the owner of the vineyard was being unfair. He's paying the same amount to all these groups irrespective of how much they have worked. In our capitalistic society, that's a crime. It's an affront to the hard work of the people who have been working since the morning. You could never hire anybody today under those terms, right? Because everybody's going to show up at 5, at 5 p.m. to just get into the last, the last batch, right? On the other hand, the landowner and the workers from 6 a.m., they agreed on a price. And the owner of the land paid that price. That's a dictionary definition of fair. And this is at the core, I think, of what the parable is trying to tackle. When talking about the kingdom of God, the concept of fairness makes no sense. Because the whole thing is based on grace. So yes, we are called to sacrifice and to die for ourselves. There is this cost of living into the life of the kingdom of God and leaving things behind for God. And yes, Jesus promises to reward those sacrifices. But at the same time, the kingdom of God is so much more valuable and worthy than anything we can ever do that if we try just thinking about it in terms of fairness, it's not going to make sense. And the point I think this is trying to make is this. Some of you in this room, you probably have lived lives trying to follow Jesus and pursue Jesus and chase after Jesus. And maybe things haven't been easy. Maybe things have been really difficult. And maybe you're looking at your life and be like, God, I'm, I'm honoring you. I'm following you. I'm like, why is it so hard? As then we look around and we see people that we know are not living like we're living because we're friends with them on Facebook and we see what they're posting, right? And they just got a promotion and a new car and they went to Aruba. And nobody get COVID in their house, right? And we're like on our third round of COVID. And it's like, what's going on? And very easily, the, the, the feeling that kind of like sink in is, is God unfair. And what you're telling in this parable is, God's not going to rip you off. Following Jesus, God, God's not a God that deceives that lies. God's a God that loves and is generous and gracious. Now, this is the thing. God's also not fair. As a matter of fact, you don't want God to be fair. Because fairness gets you what you deserve. Now, there's another parable that Jesus tells uh, about these people that are kind of like uh, doing all of kind of like their, their, their pious lives for the sake of attention. And they are living the perfect life. They are, and, and if you look, it's not like they have like a thing on the side. No, they're living the perfect lives and they're honoring God, but they're doing it 
for the sake of attention or for the sake of, you know, being looked at by other people. And Jesus says, if that's a reward they want, that's a reward they're going to get. If you get what you deserve, you might realize that you don't deserve what you think you deserve. What you want, like if you approach the kingdom of God with that mentality, you're never going to be happy. Because you're always going to be frustrated because of two things. One is that you, if you think that you have to earn God's favor, then guess what? Every single day of your life, you're going to try to work in yourself into earning God's favor. Every act of righteousness is going to feel burdensome. Remember how the workers from 6 a.m. say, we've worked hard in the heat and burned the burden of the heat of the day. When you live for God just because you want to earn a reward, it's going to feel like work. And it's not meant to be that. But the other point is that you're also going to be envious of the blessings of others who you think deserve less than you. And, and the parable Jesus is making this point, he says, are you envious because I am generous? In, in the original language, the, 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 the literal way of that line is, is your eye evil because I am generous? When we approach the kingdom of God on the basis of earning and deserving, uh, in other words, through, through the eyes of religion, the goodness of God, the generosity of God, it seems offensive. It seems wrong. It seems evil. And in turn, it poisons our hearts. And a lot of times it doesn't come out in anger. A lot of times it comes out as a wound. Because you feel like you've worked so hard and you've played by the rules and you behave right. And you're still not where you should be or where you think you should be. And you feel like you can't get ahead. And maybe you're still alone, even though you've stayed pure and faithful, and God has to send that person to you. And even though you read the Bible, and you pray, and you try to make God the joy of your life, you're still struggling with anxiety, and depression, and loneliness. And all of these bad things happen to you. And, 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 and kind of like the underlying thing is, is God's being unfair, and he's not. And it's just that life in the kingdom of God does not work on the categories of earning or deserving. So our eyes become evil. And Jesus is telling Peter, if you start comparing what you have sacrificed with what the rich people will or won't sacrifice, you are going to be miserable. And I think that's what Jesus is telling us too. What you want, Jesus says, not for God to be fair. You want God to be generous. To give you more than you deserve, more than you could possibly earn. But that also means that God is going to be generous to others and give them more than they could possibly earn. If you read the parable, you're not, you're not know. It's a landowner never agrees on a, on a price with the other workers, which leads to the question, what were the other workers thinking? We wonder that. Like, how much do you think they, th they thought they were going to get paid? Less, right? Because they've been there since the morning. They heard the, the 6 a.m. workers being promised a denarius. I don't think the 5 p.m. worker thought he was also going to get paid a denarius. I think they were thinking, man, if I can get enough money to like buy something to eat tonight, I'll be happy. And I think that's the right attitude to have when it comes to the kingdom of God. That, that we're just happy to be in the kingdom of God. And that whatever we get is more than we deserve. This is our life. And we live in this tension between the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus, and the 
unbelievably undeserved, unmerited, incredibly generous, more than we could possibly imagine grace that God gives us. There is uh, this uh, German theologian, uh, kind of like in, in, in the mid-1900s, uh, his name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think we have a picture of him. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was a German pastor that was executed by the Nazis in the concentration camp during World War II because he spoke against the Nazi government. Actually, he was involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. It's a movie about that. It's a crazy story. But anyway, in one of his books, he talks about this idea of costly grace. And, and he talks about costly grace because he's kind of like this dissident of the German Protestant church at the time because the German Protestant church had just embraced Nazism and kind of like just endorsed everything that Hitler was doing. And he was kind of like pushing against it. And the way that he makes sense about that is that the, the German church at the time had cheapened grace to the point that it was disconnected to what it means to follow Jesus. He says this famous quote. He says, cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap, is, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is a preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And then he contrasts this idea of cheap grace with what he calls costly grace. And he says this, costly grace is a treasure hidden in the field for the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is a pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is a kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again. The gift, which must be asked for the door, at which a man must knock. Such Grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son to the Europe price to pay for our life, but deliver him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. This is what the rich young ruler doesn't understand. And because it's like because of that, it seems like it's too high a price to pay. So he walks away from the gospel. The cost of this costly grace is too much for him to leave his possessions behind. But at the same time, you cannot believe that any sacrifice or service you give to God is earning you God's love. It's a response to God's love. The rewards that the workers get are not something they earn. They even that are a result of God's generosity. They are grace. So from one perspective in Matthew 19, grace is costly. From the other perspective, grace is completely and absolutely free. There is nothing fair about it. It's a paradox. There's another quote about grace that I really like. By a guy named Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning was his Catholic priest. But he was also a recovering alcoholic. And he has this tumultuous life of, like, you know, ups and downs. And, and towards the end of his life, in one of his memoirs, he writes this. He says, my life is a witness to vulgar grace. A grace that amazes as it offends. 
A grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wage as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. A grace that hikes up the robe and runs pregnant towards the prodigal, reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party. No ifs, ands, or buts. A grace that raises bloodshot eyes to a dying man's, to a dying thief's request, please remember me and assures him, you bet. This vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap. It's free. And as such will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all our might to try and find something or someone that it cannot cover. Grace is enough. That's a paradox of the kingdom of God. And I think the invitation of Jesus to us this morning is to live in that tension. To realize what it means to follow Jesus. To realize that in a way, it could cost us our lives to be faithful to him. And at the same time, to realize that everything, absolutely everything that we have, every molecule of air that we breathe, our salvation, every blessing, it's a gift. And, it's free. and whatever reward we get, we get in heaven, whatever life on the earth of eternity looks like, it's a gift. And to live with gratitude and joy in light of those two truths. And it's a tension, and, and it's a tension that you could say it's hard to resolve. And believe it or not, the way in which we resolve attention, this is partially why Jesus doesn't give us flat-out explanations. There's no def dictionary definition of what the kingdom of God is. Jesus tells these stories. Precisely because of how the tension is. You know how the tension resolves? Tension resolves right here. At the cross. 